God bless all of you. Wow. Holiday weekend. I thought we'd have about 14 here, but generally um, I was just talking to a friend of mine this past week up in East Lake, East Lake Church. They actually dismissed service this weekend, just to, decided not to fight it. Is that sacrilegious to dismiss church for a holiday weekend? Um, I mean, there's got to be. I always joke and say, we got to have church. I mean, those of us that don't have boats and lake houses, we got to have something to do on the holiday weekend, right? So here we are together. Um, Mary, you guys have one thing we wanted to do today, and let's have the ushers hand these out. We are five weeks away from being in our new location. Can you believe that? Today is the second, so we've got second night, 16, 23, 30. And then the weekend, what is that, five weekends from now, we are going to be at our new location up on Franklin Road, campus sharing with um, Unity of Nashville. Now, the thing that we've all known about this, there's so much about this that feels right and good, and we could talk about that all day long. There's a ton that feels right and good about this. The chief challenge, I mean, it's an incredible facility. These people are throwing the doors open to us in such a beautiful way. It's really amazing. Um, but the chief challenge is we're not going to be able to do the conventional Sunday morning service. So in this temporary season of our life, we're going to have to figure out how to do church another time besides Sunday at 10. We've had at Grace Point through the years a lot of different services. I suppose the greatest failed attempt we ever had was we decided for whatever reason to have a 745 morning service one time. We did that for two years. How many would come to a 745 morning service? Yep, and that's how many that did. Um, <laughs> but a lot of churches have a lot of unconventional times. So the three times that our leadership council and pastors have kind of settled on that seem to be the most reasonable are Saturday afternoon at 5.30, Sunday afternoon at 3, or Sunday evening at 5.30. All three of these have been successfully done by many churches. Um, we all know that uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters figured out a long time ago that the Saturday thing works. And the Protestants caught up to that. Megachurch Protestants caught up. And forgive me for sounding like a frog today. I wore my black because I may break into Johnny Cash before too long. Um, I hear the train a-coming. But anyway, this bronchitis has got me. Um, so forgive me if my voice wears out on, is annoying. But there's a, Saturday night has been a successful time. A lot of people like the Saturday night thing because... Saturday at 5.30, you have your full Saturday. You go home, splash a little water on your face at 5 o'clock, throw a fresh T-shirt on, get to church at 5.30. You're done at 6.45, and you're on to the movies and dinner at 7. So it really, that time, uh, a lot of people, a lot of churches have um, seen their Saturday night get even bigger than their Sunday mornings. A lot of people love the Saturday night thing. The thing that a lot of people like about that is it kind of feels like a Christian Sabbath. You go to church Saturday afternoon, and by sundown, uh, our Sabbath, the first day of the week, starts, and you have Saturday essentially all day, Saturday evening for rest, and you wake up Sunday, and you got all day Sunday going into the week. So a lot of people like that. Sunday afternoon at 3, uh, I've seen this one work 
multiple times, probably the, the most successful venture at Sunday afternoon at three has been our friends at Christ Community. Christ Community, which grew into an incredibly large church, actually started their church Sunday afternoon at three o'clock. And they had Sunday afternoon at three for many, many years. Grew to thousands of people um, doing Sunday afternoon at three. And then Sunday at 530, uh, I've had quite a few people say that this one sounded really good to them. Feels better than Saturday because Saturday kind of interrupts the weekend. And if you're going to be gone, you know, you could be gone, head out after work Friday, Saturday, and then come back Sunday afternoon and still be at church Sunday evening. Uh, the chief, the, hear a lot of people talking about Sunday afternoon at 5.30, they like. The chief pushback on Sunday afternoon at 5.30 is people with kids generally like settling down on Sunday evening and getting ready for the week. So there are pluses and minuses to all of these. But we thought to really make a fair decision about this, we should put it to you. And we would love, just as I'm walking through the sermon today, for you to think about this. And if you have an idea... Um, about which one of these that you would like, please check it if you want to explain why. If you have an alternative time, we're really exploring right now. So, so help us out with that. You can, um, Mary, Carol, what's the best way? Turn them in in the offering box or just put them in the offering box? Um, I, I guess you could even leave them on the seat, hand them to one of the leadership council. But please, everybody participate. To be statistically significant, it would help us to have as many numbers as possible, okay? All right, good. Don't get distracted too much while I'm speaking because this is a, going to be, a, I think, a good one that we all need to hear. But uh, somebody said, uh, well, I don't know that I can make a decision today. That's okay. I mean, we're needing to make decisions, but if you want to take a week and think about it, that's fine too. But whoever can turn it in today, that would be great. All right, good. Thumbs up. All right. I just hope that the cards don't come back 33, 33, 33. <laughs> what we would really like is for y'all to make our job easy and for it to be 52, 17, 28 and for one of them to be far and away uh, the one that stands out. All right. Uh, do you have your Bibles? All right, then take out your phone, as we always say, and turn with me in your iPhone or Galaxy to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. We're telling the story of Joseph. I better keep this near because it's not good. About three. Don't touch me. I'll try not to breathe on you. Because I'm like the old boy that they said, where are you hurting? He said, you see that spot right there? They said, yeah. He said, that's the only place I'm not hurting. <laughs> that's the way I feel right now, but... Um, I, I, I'm glad to be here though. Genesis 45. Story in a nutshell. The youngest brother, the second to youngest brother of 12 brothers, Joseph. The fourth generation of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. This young man was the favored child of the father, Jacob. Uh, the obvious reason was that he was the firstborn child of the barren wife, Rachel, the wife that Jacob preferred. 
Interesting story about Rachel and Leah, these two sisters who were married to Jacob. Jacob was working for their father and he feigned to have married Rachel. And when he thought that the agreement had been made and Jacob was going to give Rachel to him, Jacob fooled him and gave him Leah. Jacob then had to work another decade plus to get the woman that he really wanted. Now think about that scenario. While he was longing for the woman he wanted, he was married to the woman he didn't want. And these two were sisters. An incredibly painful setup. Um, the Bible tells us finally he married Rachel. And these two girls, these two women, these two people entered into this antagonistic relationship married to the same man. Leah always knew that he loved her younger sister more. And Rachel always knew that she herself was barren and Leah was quite fecund, fertile, ripe with children. Leah had child after child after child. Um, the story goes that with every child, she would go of sorts, get an Olin Mills picture made with the child, bring it to, bring it to Jacob, hold the baby and say, do you love me now? And he didn't, and her heart would break. Uh, the story says that she did this four or five times. She kept having babies, trying to fix her marriage, having babies. And with every baby, she would long for it to be the thing that would put her over the hump with Jacob. But again and again, Jacob would pat the baby on the head, thank her for the babies, and look lovingly toward Rachel and Leah's heart would break. It's a terrible story. The Bible said, eventually the Lord ceased opening Leah's womb and he ceased opening her womb. At the moment, you can go back and look at this story, it's pretty profound. At the moment, she detached from the demand that he would love her. When she finally Kelly, when she finally died to it, boy, detachment, letting go of outcome, demand of expectation, Buck, that's a biggie. And when she finally realized this rat race was destroying her, her heart settled and she ceased saying, now he will love me. And the Bible said at the moment she ceased and gave it up, the Lord closed her womb and the game was over. She settled into an imperfect peace, which is all any of us can ever have, actually. When she settled into the imperfect peace that she would have her children, but she would never have his heart, this is all back in 37, 38, 39 of Genesis. The Bible immediately says, then Rachel began praying, give me children or let me die. Rachel, the loved wife, literally following Leah's story of attachment, letting go, detachment, dying, and settling into the imperfect peace, immediately the younger sister picks up the same scenario with a different set of variables. 
The picture is so interesting. This scenario that, J, uh, that Joseph is born out of is literally, to use old language, Rachel and Leah were on opposite ends of the altar praying for what the other one had. Fully believing if they just had what the other one had, their heart would be full. Leah had children, but not the love of her husband. Rachel had the full love of her husband, but not children. What a picture of us that is. Praying from the opposite ends of the altar for what we see in the other that we so long for and just totally believe if we had it, we would be full. Not knowing that they are returning the favor in our direction. The truth is that the remedy of that longing, that tense altar, is to not acquire what the other has, but to settle into what you do have and to make peace there and to find that imperfect peace. Finally, the Bible says that evidently Rachel made peace with her barrenness, just as Leah made peace with her barren marriage. And just as when Leah made peace with her barren marriage, her womb closed because the fix was no longer needed. When Rachel finally detached and said, children will not be mine, interestingly, her womb opened. And that has often, not only figuratively, but literally been the case for many. And Joseph was born. And Jacob, in his imperfections, did exactly what you would expect him to do. He began to favor that child. And at 17 years old, that poor parenting with no equanimity, no balance, no maturity, finally fed into this embittered relationship between Joseph and his brothers. And the story I told you two weeks ago ensued. His brothers attempt to kill him. They finally decide that he's more lucrative to them alive, so they sold him as a slave. He is sold into slavery in Potiphar's house, where from 17 to 26, he serves for nine years. The Bible says that when his brothers put him down in the pit, God was with him. When they sold him into slavery and they put him in the back of that Midianite slave trader's cart, God was with him. When he stood on the auction block and he remembered that his brothers had gotten 20 pieces of silver and now he heard that he would sell for 100 pieces, he was able to do the emotional math and realize that so much of life is about how we commoditize one another how utilitarian we are with one another in relationships. How at some point you begin to realize that you have been a number and perhaps you have numbered people. He goes brokenhearted into that slavery and in Potiphar's house God was with him and immediately is elevated to the chief position as servant the end of that, Potiphar's wife seduces him. He honorably rebuffs her. 
She screams and cries rape. Potiphar comes and there's nothing the kid can say. And in a turmoil of a day, he ends up in the dankest, darkest of prison cells. And now from 26 to 30, interestingly, these Hebrew stories so weave together with the story of Jesus sold for pieces of silver, years ultimately of betrayal, and for four years in that prison cell, he steeps, bastes, cooks in his bitterness. Potiphar's wife, the least, Potiphar the least, Midianite slave traders the least, his brothers. After four years through a, a set of circumstances that are uncanny, he gets lifted out of the prison in another whirlwind of a day. Think about it. In one whirlwind of a day, he goes from a coat of many colors to a pit. Another whirlwind of a day, he goes from the pit to slavery. In another whirlwind of a day, he goes from being the chief beloved servant to being accused unjustly of rape. And he's in prison. And now, oh, the caprice and the whimsy of life. And now in the vast, complicated, frail matrix of human relationships. In a whirlwind of a day, Lee, he's no longer in prison punch drunk almost he's made the vice pharaoh of Egypt and all of those days happened to essentially the same man <laughs> through the next seven years from 30 to 37 he governs Egypt through a time of bountiful harvest and then the prophesied famine hits, and from 37 to 39, he is divvying out the collected food from the abundant silos to not only Egyptians, but to the nations roundabout. And at 39 years old, 22 years removed from the last time he ever saw his father, his mother, his younger brother, his older brothers, He's standing there, or sitting there on his second throne. And the servant says there are a group of people from the Levant to the north. They are here. They are starving and they are asking food for their family. And he says, let them in. And when they walk in, 22 years removed, they had forgotten him. But when you lie on a caught and you think about people and your life falls into the wound of their lives you don't forget them and behind his new kingly status he now is looking at Reuben Simeon, Levi Judah Issachar Naphtali Asher Gad Dan and they have no idea 
over the next over the next year or so he puts them through a series of agonizing hoops he sends them away after imprisoning them for a while he sends them away with their bags full of grain but he sets them up by putting their money back in the bags he keeps one of their brothers Simeon with him in prison he sends them back to their father and says if you ever come back don't come back without the younger brother he could have broke out in tears and said my brother Rachel's son Benjamin finally their starvation is so bad they have to return Jacob begrudgingly lets them take Benjamin as Benjamin walks out the door Jacob again laments that he will never see this youngest son this son of Rachel his beloved wife Joseph then puts them through a series of events suffice to say at the end of those events they still do not know it's Joseph one of the most moving things about the story is that over and over again as he's putting them through this gauntlet this psychological gauntlet that they don't understand Carol again and again he removes himself he literally says hold it removes himself and goes and buries his head in a pillow and weeps bitterness forgiveness hope of restoration vindictiveness I don't think it was settled for him I think he was wrestling finally it ends in Genesis 44 with these brothers standing in front of him he fills their bags again with grain for the third time he had already sent them away once and he had put his cup in Benjamin's bag and then he sent his guards out to pursue them and when they opened the bags they pointed their finger at Benjamin and the brothers knew the skinny was up they're now before Joseph again their bags are filled and he said tell you what I'm gonna do I'm a fair man you can go home but the kid that stole my cup he's gonna stay that's the punishment and Joseph then watches them Twenty-two years before, he watched those same men with less wrinkles, more hair, less gray, less mileage on the tread of their souls. He watched them as a younger brother lifted up his voice from the pit and said, please, please. And he watched them with great callous say no he listened to them say when dad falls apart crying we're just going to tell him that an animal got hold of the boy here's the garment it's bloody and when dad holds it falls over broken when Rachel collapses on top of him 
We're going to be satisfied that the boy got what was coming to him. And they slapped themselves on the back. And now he's looking at those same men. And I'm sure he's doing what all of us do. We have a tendency to hold people where we last remember them. We have a tendency to believe that when these imperfect human relationships happen, that it's only us who go, Stephen, on our way to a better life, looking, owning, dealing with the complexity, growing, only us. We think surely they must remain in that same immature, evil, bad place they were. And that's what he wanted to know. Something about those years at least caused him to want to know. And I think he stood there with bated breath that day as he said to those boys, you're free, just leave the kid. I'm sure he could still hear their laughing, their cackling, their reprobate, calloused hearts. And I think he winced as he thought they were going to look at him and say, good deal, we're out of here. But instead he found something out that I think we struggle to learn in life and that is that when he left those men and went on his journey, his soul-making journey, so did they. Wendy, he wasn't the only one that rolled in a prison cell and said, if I ever see them again. Basting in their own guilt, in their own pain consciences, what he found out this day, Carol, was they had not slept well the last 22 years either. And he looked at them, and instead of watching them callously leave their little brother, the son of Rachel, the favored child, instead of watching them say, good riddance, we got out of him bags full of grain. He's just worth silver to us. He watched the brother's lips begin to tremble. And they said, no. And he said, why? And they said, we can't tell you the whole story because we can't even admit it to ourselves. But our father has already lost a younger son unfairly. And we can't let it happen again. Can you imagine? Doug, can you imagine what Joseph is thinking as he's hearing this? He is hearing his brothers in their own halting, imperfect way say, we are sorry. My God, we would give both arms up to our shoulder to have that day back. But Dwayne, sometimes you can't get that day back. You minister to people all day long who are incarcerated, 
who cannot put the genies back in the bottle. There is a point that sometimes repentance is not being able to correct it. Sometimes the only repentance is when you know to the depth of your soul that you would give everything you have to have done it differently. Ever been there? But you can't. And finally Judah stepped forward, this one from which Christ came. And Judah says, uh, would you keep me? In other words, Joseph is now hearing this. He's now hearing Judah say, see, years ago, Judah and Reuben said, let's don't kill him, let's sell him. Now Judah's saying, pull him up out of that pit and lower me down in it. And at this point, 39-year-old Joseph is 17-year-old Joseph because the years of our lives are not like calendar pages that we tear off and throw away. 18 doesn't replace 17 and 19 doesn't replace 18. Like the concentric rings of a tree, that place in us that life once flowed through the chief life that we have now no longer flows through that ring, but that ring is still a part of our construct. And 39-year-old vice Pharaoh is now 17-year-old Joseph. 21-year-old Joseph. 26-year-old unjustly accused Joseph. 27, 28, 29, four years of life in a prison cell, Joseph. And as all of, those, all of those layers collide in the vast complexity that is the matrix of human relationships, the divine current of forgiveness and hope and faith and love that weaves its way through like a gold strand through the tons, the megatons of dirt and rock in us. Joseph's lips begin to tremble as he looks at Judah, as the rest of the brothers say, me too, keep us all. Dad doesn't deserve to hurt again. It's that setting, and I'll spend the next couple of weeks fleshing this out for you, but chapter 45 says, in that moment, Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried out. 39 years, 22 years, 17 to 39. He stood up, I could almost see him, Barbara, as he just whatever the regalia was, it's like he throws it off and he pulls off the garment. And the pain 
Oh, it's palpable. But the antibodies of mercy and grace, the white blood cells of love and forgiveness, muster within the vast bounds of their divinity, muster every ounce of force they have as they attack the infection of bitterness and pain and hurt and wrong and retribution and vindication. And as those, because in that 22 years, as the leukemic virus of bitterness and hatred eroded him to the very marrow of his soul. There was, Lee, the antibodies of grace and mercy and divinity that were fighting. And there had to be moments down in that prison cell of transfusion where the marrow couldn't cure itself and could not sustain but there would be moments of transfusion. One of those moments was a few years before when they came to him and said, hey, Vice Pharaoh, your wife just had a baby. And he took that baby in his hands and a transfusion supernaturally took place. He realized that he could live the rest of his life down in that pit, in that bitterness, but here was a little baby that didn't know that story and never needed to. Here was a new generation. Here was the possibility that a generational curse could cease if he could let go. Instead of calling him bitterness, he lifted the baby and said, call him forgetting. Call him forgetting. And the people looked so strangely who names a kid forgetting? He said, call him forgetting. For the Lord has made me forget all the sorrow of my father's house. Divine forgetting is not the erasure of memory. It's the capacity to remember the event without feeling the sting. Divine forgetting is not the erasure of memory. It's the ability to remember the pit without that poisonous snake stabbing you in the heart. Transfusions take place in life. Before too long, they called him and said, there's a second baby born. And he lifted him up and he said, call him prosperity in the land of my adversity. This little boy reminds me that I really haven't been able to lose for winning because God has always been with me. As Chuck Swindoll said, it's 90% what happens to you, or 10% what happens to you, and 90%. All of those transfusions, all of those antibodies of grace and mercy that are attacking these 22 years of pain, maybe 39 years, 
culminate. And let me just read you a little bit here and then we'll go home. And then I'd love for you to read Genesis 45 this week and come back with your own thoughts next. When he could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, he cried out. This is so wonderful to me. He cried out, everybody out. Everybody out. Make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. David, the way you know you're on a path of forgiveness is when you leave everybody else out of it except you and the person you're forgiving or being forgiven by. The need to bring others in, the need to be right, the shaming need to make a spectacle. He had every right and yet he didn't. But technically, as the world operates, he had every right to look at them and say, I'm going to forgive you, but not until I humiliate you to the uttermost farthing. But he didn't do that. He looked at all of the Egyptians who loved him. And he said, you know, this is none of your business. Get out. Because the psalmist said, and the writer of Proverbs agreed, love covers a multitude of wrong. But hatred stirs up strife. You see, there is a difference between covering and cover-up. Covering acknowledges. Covering owns. Covering takes responsibility. But as my old mentor, Brother Hardwick, used to teach me, the correction of a fault should never be more broad than the fault itself. That's why when they drag a woman caught in the act of adultery in front of the crowd, Jesus says, essentially, everybody out. It's got nothing to do with you. That's why when Jesus knew he was going to meet a woman at the well, he looked at his disciples and he said, y'all mind running on into town? Why? Well, we need dinner. Interesting. Later when they came back and said, here's the dinner, he said, not hungry. Well, then why did you have us go into town? Because I needed you out of here. Why did you need us out of here? None of your business. Because I want to tell you, when you've been married five times and you're living with a guy and you're so ashamed that you can't even go to well, the well with your own people and then all of a sudden you meet somebody who can touch your soul it's hard enough to reckon what has ruined five marriages it is hard enough to own that the guy you're with now can't even marry you or won't it's hard enough to come to all of that it's hard enough to admit how thirsty you've been and how that has played out in the most unhealthy of relational ways, it's hard enough. But I tell you what would make it especially hard for that woman 
as Jesus was touching her soul. And she said, I'm a failure. He said, this isn't about sex and relationships. You're thirsty. Everybody will drink sewage water when they're dying of thirst. That sensitive moment would have been made impossible with 11 men looking over his shoulders at her. Tell you how you know you've achieved forgiveness. You understand that restoration is between you and them. And you leave everybody else out of the story and say, this is us. Everybody out. That is the first of nine indicators that you are on your way to forgiveness. And the other eight I'll share over the next couple of weeks, and they're even more powerful than that one. And they're all embedded in this story. And I'm using my old Bible that I don't use anymore. And it tells me that time has definitely passed because my eyes can't read the notes that I wrote in the margins. I taught this lesson one time 11 years ago. And I didn't know what the heck I was talking about. So now I'm going to get some readers and I'm going to read these notes in the margins of this new King James Version that I never use anymore. And I'm going to see how differently this stuff feels to me 12 years later than it did when I first wrote it. In one way, this is a 3,000-year-old story. In another way, it's a 49-year-old story or a whatever-year-old story. But brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the Bible. It is our story. Everybody out. And he wept aloud. And as those befuddled brothers looked around, he wiped the makeup off. And he leaned in. And he said, I'm Joseph. And as terror struck their heart, he stopped them and said, no, 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 no. It's not like that. The Bible says they begin to back up to the wall and he moved toward them. And as they put their backs against the wall, terrified of what he was about to do, he looked at them and said, come near me, be not afraid. And the story that ensues is a remarkable story of restoration. And it is all of ours in every situation if we but want it. Can you say amen? Let's bow our hearts. And just for a moment of meditation, let's think about where we all were five years ago, 12 years ago, 30 years ago, when we were writing in the margins of our Bible. <laughs> oh, these old Bibles, these old pages of our lives, these concentric rings inside our soul that still live. Sweet Christ, we open our journey to you. This one, so like Joseph, search our hearts. We 
celebrate that with all the vile illness that attacks us from within, our chief viruses are not from without. Our chief viruses are our own cells, our own spiritual cancers that get out of control, that belong to no one else but us. <laughs> May the next few weeks here at Grace Point be a time of the building up of white blood cells. May our morrow become strong. May our bones become healthy. May our dry bones live again. Teach us your ways, O oh God. Teach us this journey of love, of detachment, of letting go, that we may be healed. We pray all of this in the name of the one who was lowered into a pit, betrayed by his friends, the one we call Christ. And God's people said, Amen. God bless you.